following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. Read only the first 10 verses of John chapter 10. Please follow along. Have God's word open in front of you. Jesus is speaking. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door but climbs in by another way, that man is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him the gatekeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. A stranger they do not follow, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus used with them, but they did not understand what he was saying to them. So Jesus said again to them, Truly, truly I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Father, your word is eternal. It is powerful. The same spirit who gave it once to prophet and apostle speaks to us now when we pray that you would speak it into our lives for Jesus' sake and his glory. Amen. Although you realize, of course, that in this sanctuary we have only clear glass in our windows, you have certainly, I'm sure, been in churches where there is stained glass in windows, and not just random colors, but stained glass organized into pictures of various biblical scenes. I'm not sure that anybody can represent to you a scientific survey of this, but I'm giving you an estimate or a guess But let me first ask you, what biblical scene in your mind do you think might be one of the most often, if not the most often, represented scene in a stained glass window in an American church? My own guess, unscientific to be sure, is that it's probably some kind of a tie between Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane and Jesus holding a lamb and surrounded by sheep, and I'm sure there are churches where you would find both of those represented in the same uh, building. God's Word is full of imagery about sheep and shepherds, to be sure, very common imagery. Psalm 100 in verse 3 says, we are God's people. We are the sheep of His pasture. 
Isaiah 40, verse 11 says, The Lord shall feed his flock like a shepherd and gather lambs in his own arms and carry them. Very attractive image for us to think about. Ezekiel 34, 22 has God promising, I will set up over my people one shepherd, my servant David, and I will rescue my flock. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. Certainly, this image appears and appears again and again because most of the people of Israel through many centuries were agricultural people living in small villages or out on the land somewhere where they had some animals that they tended or if perhaps they were a shopkeeper, they lived within sight of someone who had a flock of sheep. And for this to be referred to is an image that people would understand, something about sheep, how they behave, and what was being said. Although the interesting thing in our chapter today, John 10, 6 says, the way in which Jesus applied this image of shepherds and sheep in this particular occasion confused them, and they didn't fully understand at first what he was saying. The Bible certainly refers not just to woolly animals. Sheep are people in Scripture. We know that. And the Bible assumes that human beings have many spiritual characteristics in common with the natural behaviors of sheep. And some of you may think, well, this isn't terribly complimentary to us. But for all I know, the sheep might think the same thing, that it's not too complimentary to be compared to a human being. But nevertheless, the Word does that. You know, we, we're told, I have no real firsthand experience with sheep, I would admit, but I'm told that in the animal talent contest, you know, America, what is it, America's Got Talent? Maybe they have animals have got talent. Sheep would be in last place, I think, almost every time. We're told they're not very bright. They don't usually know what's good for themselves. They might be within 50 or 100 feet of of a good source of spring water or fresh green grass, but sometimes they say that if the shepherd doesn't practically put their noses in it, they don't know it's there. They turn and go looking in the other direction for something. They wander off. They get lost. If they're attacked, they have just one defense strategy, panic and flee. I, I think it was from the uh, films, the TV series of James Harriet and his care of animals as a vet that I learned about a sheep being in a cast condition. Have you ever heard of that? Where evidently, it, it, perhaps a, maybe it was frightened by a dog or a coyote or a wolf or something, and, and the sheep ran and ran and panicked until it fell and rolled on its back, and then it was so spent that it could not get off its back. Think of a turtle, you know, upside down with its feet unable to do anything. Sheep can get in that condition and can actually die like that unless the shepherd comes and turns them and puts them right side up again. Well, guess what? If you've been a pastor, you've met people like that. And believe me, it's not funny when you meet them. Sheep need constant human supervision. They're heavily dependent upon men, upon a shepherd. One writer said something with his tongue heavily in cheek, I think, when he said the continued existence of sheep 
on planet Earth seems to definitely disprove the evolutionary principle of survival of the fittest since sheep are hardly fit to survive for a single day if left to themselves. So we don't like, perhaps, comparisons to sheep. But in spiritual terms, we do resemble them more than we would wish to think. In need of our God as a vigilant provider and caretaker. Nowhere in all of Scripture is Jesus Christ more clearly and definitely portrayed as the strong shepherd of his people than here in John 10. And by the way, I didn't even get to the statement yet, I am the good shepherd. You'll see if you look ahead one verse, we'll start with that next time in verse 11. But he begins, Jesus begins using this image, this metaphor, to try to teach us some things here in the first 10 verses of John 10. He teaches us that there are false shepherds who are pretenders, and we better watch out for them. And he teaches us that he is also not only the authentic shepherd, but the door of his sheep. And those are not contradictory ideas. So let's try to look at just those two ideas in two points today. First of all, John 10, 1 through 6. If I would rephrase this for you or summarize it, I would say beware of counterfeit shepherds tampering with God's flock. Now, as I read the various commentaries on this, there are you know, quite a flurry. It's always interesting to me to see the things commentators spend ink on. Quite a discussion of why chapter 10 starts out as it does with no sense of time or place. It doesn't say after so many days or as he went up to the temple or anything like that. It just launches right in with Jesus speaking truly, truly. And the commentators are all a flutter about, well, why isn't there more context set here or something? And I'm sorry, you know, I would see, as, as some do comment, a minority at least comments, that there is a very definite connection here between chapter 10 and the end of chapter 9. If you would remember, or at least glance back to see what was happening in chapter 9, as the man once born blind was healed by Jesus and then interrogated, grilled in a really strong and harsh way throughout chapter 9. His parents were... were uh, prosecuted, and he was, he was brought in and questioned in a very stern manner, and finally treated roughly. I like to say he was mugged, basically, by the Pharisees who just said, well, you couldn't have been blind, or why, how do you explain this, or who is this guy? And what you had here were the senior pastors of Israel, the high priests, the Pharisees, the scribes, They were the pastors of God's flock. And what were they doing in the end of chapter 9? They were beating up one of God's sheep. So this is very much connected because when Jesus starts right out talking about those who are inauthentic shepherds, we know who he's talking about. The people that he's just been dealing with, the scribes and Pharisees of chapter 9, the senior pastors who were not shepherds as they were assigned to be. He calls them thieves and robbers. And he says that it's evident from their behavior that they come really to molest the flock, to harm the flock, to steal from the flock. He doesn't mince words here in saying that he is God's authentic appointed shepherd, the one predicted long ago in the prophets. And that will be validated as people watch his behavior alongside that of these 
false shepherds who prove that they're false because they have no compassionate pastoral care to bring healing, to treat an injured lamb. Could we call a man born blind an injured lamb who should have been cared for and and over whom they should have rejoiced when he found his sight and, and also found a spiritual awakening to know Christ? No, they beat him up. They bombarded him with words and challenged him at every point and sarcastically doubted his very healing. The amazing thing, even though I'm not separately covering the end of nine, if you would just read through from or glance through from about 26 to the end of chapter nine, what you see is here are the senior shepherds, the senior pastors who show greater spiritual ignorance than this newborn babe, this newborn lamb in Christ, who at least has some instinctive and proper instincts to recognize Christ in a courageous way. Now, Jesus is concerned then that his people not fall for the impressions or the the surface credentials of those who would be put forward as spiritual leaders if they're not. A seminary degree doesn't do it. An official title doesn't do it. The slick production of a TV ministry is not the qualifying factor that properly validates spiritual leadership. I'm sure some of you saw a little piece that made its rounds uh, on the internet, a little video clip. I'll be careful and not name the ministry or the individual, but it was the wife of a very prominent TV preacher that was speaking in a piece that some of you are smiling, I know you saw this, who was uh, giving what was the essential method of this entire ministry, which only happens to be based near Houston, Texas, and that's as specific as I'll get. Uh, And the, the ministry piece she was talking about was, you should be happy. God wants you to be happy. Your happiness is worship of God, just because God wants you to be happy. Well, somebody spliced into that a piece from an early Bill Cosby show in which Bill Cosby rose up and spoke to his son who had said something lame to him. And in a semi-angry tone, Bill, the father, was saying, that's about the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Well, I'm glad because it was dumb. What was being spoken was not the gospel. It was not the grace of God. It was not in praise of Jesus Christ. It was in praise of self-esteem. And people ought to have some wisdom and discernment to be able to understand that this is not the teaching of the Lord if they have a Bible open or have any idea about what is being said to them by so-called spiritual leaders. I give you a homework assignment. It's a holiday weekend. You don't have to come to evening church, so you get a homework assignment. Ezekiel 34, go read it later. A stinging indictment from the Lord of spiritual leaders in Israel who do not perform the function of caring for God's people and instead serve themselves, live off the fat of the land, actually raid the flock they're supposed to be caring for and and eat from it. 
And God said he was going to not only judge these people because he had a grievance against them, but in Ezekiel 34, 15, he said, I myself, he's talking future tense now, what was going to happen, I will come and be the shepherd of the sheep. That's a messianic prophecy. God saw that the human prophets weren't doing the job. He would come in the person of his son and be the authentic shepherd that was needed. It's interesting to me that Jesus called these inauthentic shepherds thieves and robbers. The Greek word here is the word kleptes, and you don't need a lot of imagination if you ever know what a kleptomaniac is, a person who habitually steals, to know the root kleptes. It's someone who steals furtively or deceptively or does it quiet under the counter where he hopes people don't see it happening. Shoplifting, for example. There are other words for theft by, you know, brazen boldness. If you go into a bank with an Uzi submachine gun and spray the ceiling with bullets, that's a different kind of theft. But kleptase is, is theft by quiet deception. And Jesus says that's what a false spiritual leader does. He poses as something that he's not. And he serves himself instead of serving broken and straying souls whom God wants to see helped and enriched and taught and given new hope. The Bible reserves many of its most severe denunciations for spiritual leaders who are not doing their job. In fact, I'm going to add another chapter to the homework assignment if you really want to get extra credit. Matthew 23. Read about Jesus' indictments of spiritual leaders there very harsh. Some of the most bitter talk that ever came out of Jesus' mouth was when he slammed those he called blind guides who strain at a gnat and swallow a camel, whitewashed tombs that look good on the outside and have dead bones on the inside. He had nothing good to say for spiritual leaders who were anything but spiritual and anything but pastoral in their caring for souls. Some of you know that I have a thing about different titles that ministers are given. I really don't like that much to be called the reverend because it's not a biblical title. I don't know where that ever got started. It, it to me, is almost a useless title. I'm not any more reverend than anywhere else. But, but there's a title that I do appreciate and I hope is, is one of honor, and that's the title of pastor. Because that is the title, really, of being a shepherd of God's people. I think it's an honorable title. I remember the day of my ordination just about 40 years ago, and to, be think, to think of myself as a pastor was almost an overwhelming thing to me. And I realized that it wasn't something where I was now in that office so that I could seek a claim and my name would be known and I would be exalted and people would fall away and say, oh, there goes the great magnificent pastor, but I realized year by year by year, more and more, that it was about how I invested myself in people and served them and cared for them and did the things in quiet hours in their homes and their sick rooms and on the telephone and in counseling and other things to take their burdens and help them find healing in Christ. To be a pastor is a good thing. Even if you're not formally ordained as what we call a teaching elder or a ruling elder or a deacon, 
Nevertheless, you can pastor people. Every mom and dad is a pastor of sorts. Grandparents are pastors. You can pastor your friends. There are many people who need shepherding. They need a shepherd in their lives, and it doesn't have to be someone with a seminary degree or a counseling degree. First and foremost, it needs to be someone who deeply cares and will listen and will stop and take time. Because I can tell you, as you know well, that people taking time with others is in real short supply in this world today. Jeremiah 23, 1 to 4, has the Lord foretelling that as a result of Christ, the great shepherd, one day coming, in his wake, under shepherds will come. It says God will set shepherds, plural, over his people who will care for them, and they shall, the people shall fear no more nor be dismayed when I gather them. And I love this statement, neither shall any be missing. That seems to me to be a promise for those who minister in the name of Christ, that as we go out into the world and gather people and make the gospel known and people respond, the final result rests with God. The souls he wants to gather, he's going to gather. And we don't say that in a cavalier way. But what a wonderful guarantee. Our work will be complete, and it doesn't depend on how wise or clever or how much exertion we show, God will do his work through weak instruments of the under-shepherds of God's own leaders, spiritual leaders. And how do we identify such a person? Well, it seems to me that if Christ is the great shepherd and the great example, then we look for somebody who looks in some way like Christ. Someone who even in a dim reflection is looking to Christ is glorifying Christ in what he has to say, is drawing his strength from Christ, is reproducing the doctrine of Christ, is bowing low in Christ-like humility, has time for people, and in every way makes you think, well, there's a little bit of Jesus in the room. The one who makes much of Christ and little of self is likely to be the under-shepherd of the master shepherd, the one who sent after God's own heart. Well, my second point deals with the second portion of this text, verses 7 through 10. And you, you see that the text makes a shift. It, it almost seems like two different things and, and not compatible. Jesus said he was the true shepherd as opposed to false ones, but now he says something very different. I'm the door of the sheep. It didn't seem to bother Jesus that these two things were said together, and so it shouldn't bother us, I don't think, to say that Jesus is the unique doorway by which we enter life with God. Now, what did he have in mind here? I am the door. I think the explanation is a simple one that you may have heard uh, many times before because the story of it's been around for a long time. There was a Bible scholar a hundred years ago named George Adam Smith, a Scotsman actually, who was an Old Testament scholar, and he told famously a story that's been repeated many times in Bible commentaries and sermons, how once he was in the Middle East and there he met a Palestinian shepherd, and it's important that you know the man was not a Christian and did not know the Bible or the New Testament Bible. And this man was simply showing him the work that he did with his sheep. And he showed him an enclosure that he brought his sheep into at the nighttime to 
have them be protected from marauders for the night, a roughly circular enclosure with a five or six foot wall around it, and an opening of about five feet or so, but no gate in the opening. And George Adam Smith, the scholar, said to the shepherd, well, I see that this looks like a good place to protect your sheep, but what about the opening? Obviously, that's where they go in, but don't they just all run out, or, or couldn't a marauder just easily come in that opening with no door, no gate on it? And bear in mind, this man was not a Christian and did not realize who he was echoing when he said, well, I sleep in this opening, so any sheep that would get past me to come out has to go over me, and any wolf that would go in has to come past me. I am the living door of my sheep. And I think that is absolutely what Jesus was saying here. He himself was the way of entry to the fold of God. And he also is the guardian at the gate of that entry so that he would not lose those who have entered. There's broad agreement that something like that shepherd's explanation is exactly what Jesus was teaching us here when he said, I am the door of the sheep. He was teaching us first about salvation because he says it here in verse 9. By the way, even though John is about belief in Christ and finding salvation in Christ, it's quite interesting. If you, if you go to a concordance that, that gives you an index of words in a book, the word to save isn't used an awful lot. It's used very selectively in the Gospel of John, but it's used here. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Now, that's the same concept being echoed in the very familiar passage of John 14, 6 that you probably know. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. You're saved through me. You might be among 10,000 people who go to a baseball game at our Clipper Stadium here in Lancaster and Maybe for some strange reason, the turnstile, they've got a turnstile problem and there's only one turnstile working in the whole stadium. Well, can all 10,000 people still enter the stadium? Of course they can. There's just a longer line. They all enter through that one turnstile. And that's what Jesus is saying. I'm the door. I'm the turnstile of entry. You have to come through me and no other way. And then you find the salvation of God. Ephesians 2.18 says about Christ. Through him we have access in one spirit to the Father, exclusive access. Jesus, too, was speaking about it in Matthew seven thirteen about what he called a narrow gate. And that gate wasn't like narrow so that somebody my size would have a hard time squeezing through. Narrow basically meant exclusive, the only one. There weren't a lot of choices. And besides finding salvation, look how John 10, 9 then adds that his flock goes in and out to find pasture. Some say this might have had to do with a saying of the first century that when a citizen lived in a free city under good and benevolent government, he could go in and out of his city. He could pass freely, in other words, in his daily life without living in a police state or having to show a pass every step that he made. Was Jesus saying here that in our daily lives, we're under the guardianship of him as our shepherd. And he'll help us find the resources we need, the jobs we need, the, the decisions we have to make. He'll be with us. He'll govern us. Isn't that what Psalm 23 is all about, why it's so beloved to us? 
He makes me lie down in green pastures and leads me beside quiet waters. We love that language. And we love what it says about our God, that we can go in and out on a daily basis under his care. And then the capstone of this second point comes in verse 10, where Jesus said, the thief comes only, he's recapping now, the thief comes only to kill and destroy God's flock. I come that they might have life and have it abundantly. Abundant life is a life that isn't just indicative that you're still breathing. It's a life lived to the fullest. A life that goes beyond normal expectations to to be full of the joy. We, We sang about the joy of God in our opening hymn. Rejoice, give thanks and sing. Why? Because God has given us real reason for rejoicing in this life and beyond. He's given us, in fact, that very knowledge of himself, which we lost in the Garden of Eden through sin, that now, in the face of Christ, we look upon the face of God again. And we live real life. When a lot of people are living something more like a zombie life in this world that isn't life at all. John 10, 1 to 10 has told us to be careful. There are spiritual counterfeits all around. People offering some humanistic idea with a little bit of Bible veneered over the top of it that says, here's Christianity. If you're going to be careful, you're going to need to be a Berean Christian. Remember those Bereans that Paul talked about? How they sat there with the Scriptures in front of them and compared what the apostles taught and said, let's see, does that Is that correct according to Psalm 19? Does that figure in according to Isaiah chapter 40? They checked. And they validated someone to be a spiritual leader when over and over and over they heard coherently that things checked and Christ was being presented. The Messiah whom God promised was being spoken of by these leaders. Look for the character of Christ in those you would call spiritual leaders. That's a daunting thing. Any spiritual leader certainly is daunted to think of that, that people are looking for Christ in my character, and you think, oh my goodness, how are they ever going to see that? Well, is there even the least glimmer, or is there rather somebody who's grasping at his position and his fame and his riches and and his little kingdom that he's building for himself through his TV ministry or something of that order? Is there that humility of Jesus who came and who served? Lastly, you know, throughout this passage, there's something I could have enlarged on more than I have. The way in which Jesus seems to say, his sheep know his voice. He's saying, look, maybe you're insulted that I'm comparing you to a sheep, and that makes you think I'm saying you're not very smart, but you are smart in an important way. You are smart enough that if you think about it, you know the voice of the master shepherd. You instinctively know it because it's different than every human imitator. And so you can listen in any human teacher or preacher or lay encourager or Bible study leader, anyone who would counsel you, am I hearing the echo of the master shepherd? Do I recognize his voice? If so, I will follow eagerly. If I have any doubt, I will wait 
until I do hear his voice. Jesus is the one true and authentic shepherd, the door of his people. Those who are his under-shepherds will at least reflect some glimmer of him to a watching world. Our Father, we pray that you help us in a day when it's confusing to know who's speaking true things. May your flock, those you died to save, those you called by your own voice through the Holy Spirit, not be confused, not be led out by someone who wants to do them harm. Father, for those who lead, those who are pastors, those who are elders, Bible teachers, encouragers, counselors, help us, Father. We seem to realize the greatest thing we can possibly do is humble ourselves until Jesus Christ can be seen through us. May that be so for his glory. Amen.